Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Driving value that matters on car, home and travel insurance. Now that's sound. But first up this morning, Justine McCarthy has covered many of the major news stories in this country over the past 30 years. From the inauguration of presidents to the excesses of the Celtic Tiger, from domestic abuse cases to stories of horrific institutional neglect. She's talked to ordinary families in Northern Ireland and she's been sent abroad many times by editors who value her take on what's happening in the world, despite her fear of flying. Well, Justine has collected old and and new columns from her time in the Irish Independent, the Sunday Tribune, the Sunday Times and now the Irish Times. In her new book, it's called An Eye on Ireland, A Journey Through Societal Change and it's published by Hachette. And a warning that some of the topics we cover might not be suitable for younger listeners. Justine McCarthy, good morning. Good morning, Miriam O'Callaghan. It's a great read, actually. First of all, your fear of flying and fear in general. In the introduction to the book, you tell your readers how you were scared of really everything as a little girl and not at all as brave and fearless as you have become. Why was that, do you think? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm, I'm brave and fearless even yet. Um, I, yeah, I was always very timorous and everything seemed to frighten me. Um, I remember as a very young child, you know, being terrified of planes flying over my school when I would be lying in my bed in the dormitory. Um, I remember being terrified of the big empty house across the road from our house in Bandon in, in County Cork. I I do trace it all back um, in my own sort of amateur uh, psychoanalysis way to the sudden death of my father when I was four. Um, I think that that, you know, lasting effect has been to be, it's been a constant reminder to me of the fragility of human life, Mm. that you just don't know what's around the corner. Do you remember your dad at all? I have two or three memories of him. Unfortunately, in one of them, he is reprimanding me for eating the whitewash off the back wall. (laughs) Fair enough now. (laughs) I I do remember his car, the inside of his car, the very strong smell of mint because he always had Rennie tablets in the car. I don't have many memories of my early childhood, but I have a very strong memory of the moment that my life changed because he had died. Um, my, I'm one of four sisters and I'm the second youngest one and Adrian, who would be the closest to me in age, she and I were playing with our dolls um, on the landing um, on a December day. Um, I was four, she would have been just seven and my uncle and my adult cousin came walking up the stairs and I just remember it as the light going out. There was this darkness. I don't remember them saying what they told us. Um, but I know that that was the moment I discovered that my father had died on his way home from work in his car. And my next memory is being in the back kitchen of our home. We we lived in what was called a business house, a typical typical country business house with a pub, an undertaker's, a coffin factory at the back, uh, 
an auctioneer's office at the front, taxi, <laughs> taxis out in the back. So there, we had a big kitchen at the back of the bar downstairs, which was like the service kitchen. And I can see myself going around that kitchen and the walls of the room being lined with the men from the yard, all standing, nobody talking. And we had a lovely uh, woman who used to look after us children. Her name was Birdie. And Birdie was going around pouring out tea for the men in this silent room. And I can still see myself trailing after her saying, but Birdie, what does Deb mean? When is daddy coming home? And then my next memory is, uh, I presume it must have been the evening of my father's removal. Adrian and I again were sent to O'Farrell's house down the road. They were friends of ours. And uh, the two girls, Claire and Delana, were older than us. And they were told that while the procession was passing under their window, uh, they were to play hide and seek with us and they weren't to find us until it had passed so that we wouldn't look out the window. So I n- we didn't get to go to my father's funeral. Um, I understand why that decision was made, but I think it was the wrong decision. I think we should have gone because there is a real sense of we never got to say goodbye to him. And he seems to have been a lovely man. I wish I had known him better. Do you think the absence of a father growing up, Justine, had a serious impact on your future life? Do you think that loss did have an impact on you? A huge impact. Um, When I was young and people used to say, oh, you poor child or you poor orphan, they would say. And I would say, no, it's, you know, what you never had, you never missed. And it's much harder for other girls because their fathers are going to die when they know them. And that will be awful. Um, but, you know, there is denial all the way through. And I grew up in a family of all women as a result. I had no brother. Um, so there was my mother and my three sisters. I, I then went to boarding school at the age of six for 11 years an all-female institution. So I got out of school at 17, completely sheltered, uh, terrified of the male of the species. <laughs> they, they were like aliens to me. Um, but yes, I, I think I would love to have been able to talk to my father about decisions I had to make, you know, throughout my life. I think he would have been wise from what I've heard. I think he would have guided me well. And your mom, she had to carry on with four of you, young children. That can't have been easy on her. How 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 did she handle the loss? Do you think she never about- got over it? Um, theirs was a really romantic love story. Um, they were married for eleven years. My mother was engaged to another man when she met my father. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> my father was a, a Fianna Fáil councillor. And he was brought to my mother's house by another politician. And um, I think they they locked eyes and it was instant love. And um, she always told us that uh, actually for their first date, she was waiting for him to come to the farm where she lived. And the phone rang and it was him saying, I was just checking that you were there before I called because I was afraid you might have forgotten about the date. (laughs) 
And they went out and uh, he kissed her on the way home and she said it was like being hit by a combine harvester, <laughs> which seems to have been the apogee of romance. So she, she would have been a blow in because she was from Kerry Tool in East Cork, which is almost like a different country to West Cork. <laughs> and so she found herself suddenly in charge of four daughters aged from 10 to one year um, in a town that wasn't her native town with a whole scattering of businesses that, you know, were a mystery to her. Very large um, death taxes that she had to contend with for quite a long time. I My memory of my mother when I was very young is of her always crying which is a very sad thing to say about your mother. Now, in later years, she laughed and, you know, we had we had good times, but there was always a sadness in the house. And she never remarried. No, she had opportunities galore. And <laughs> she did actually get engaged to an American man uh, called Jack, who was in the FBI and had actually flown to on the plane from America with John F. Kennedy when he came to visit wow. Ireland. And um, the plan was that they were going to go and live in Boston and that we would remain a boarding school in Cork and join them um, on holidays. But when it came to the crunch, she said she just could not marry another man. She could not love another man. Such a beautiful love story. So how did you go into journalism? I mean, you're, you've spoken there about obviously the great loss of your father, your mother going to boarding school. You were quite timid. So how did Justine McCarthy turn into this powerhouse of a journalist? How did that come about? For all the wrong reasons and by fraud. First of all, the wrong reasons were I loved writing. I thought that I'd just go off and write flowery articles for publications and, you know, just indulge my hobby. Um, I was a fraud because I failed the interview to gain admission to Rathmines. I arrived at Rathmines College of Commerce for the aptitude test and the interview. And as far as I remember, there were five people on the interview panel, including Tim Pat Coogan, whose very name terrified me because he was the editor of the Irish Press, um, Sean Egan uh, from RTE, okay. uh, who used to present a Sunday night television religion programme. So this, this was the first famous person I'd ever met <laughs> in, in this, these circumstances. But it was actually the only woman on the panel um, whose question I remember from the interview. And the question she asked me was, if your boyfriend was playing a football match, would you be jumping up and down on the sidelines and cheering him on? And I was absolutely flummoxed by the question. And I said, well, it's more likely that I would be playing the match. And um, it also dodged my having to admit that I didn't have a boyfriend and never had had a boyfriend because I thought that would not go down too well. But I failed the interview anyway for some reason. And it was my mother who got me into journalism because she became so worried about me when I got the letter of rejection from Rathmines. I spent days crying because this was the end of my world. And eventually she dug out the old um, Dublin telephone directory from under the stairs and found Sean Egan's phone number. He was the director of the journalism course in Rathmines. 
And she pleaded with him on the phone and told him that she was a widow with four daughters and I was the second youngest and my heart was broken. Would, would he please give me a chance? And he relented. And wow. thus I got into journalism. That's an amazing story, yeah. isn't it? Good on your mother. Good on my mother and good on Sean Egan. Yeah, good yeah. on Sean Egan. Let's talk about some of the big topics you cover in the book because they're all the stories you've covered, which is extraordinary. You begin the book with Mary Robinson, that story and what her election meant to women and for societal change. It was hugely significant for you, wasn't it? It was. Even then, I saw that as a turning point for Ireland And I'm more convinced of that than ever when I look back. And when I was in the National Library researching for An Eye on Ireland, I was hit even more strongly by how significant her election was. I think it's very hard to explain to younger people Mm. who weren't around at the time and particularly younger women the difference, the psychological difference it made to have this really smart, high achieving woman who could really talk down any man in a debate as the first woman president of our country, that she was going to be the face of our country. There was no way that our country could not change if she was the president. And that's why I start off the book with that piece about her inauguration, because it was spine tingling. Mm. Um, to see all the men there in their, you know, their formal clothes and the Chief Justice swearing her in and the Taoiseach Charles Hawhey and all the uh, representatives of the different sectors of society. It was such a patriarchy. It was Mm -hmm. wall to wall suits and ties. And here was this woman in the middle of them whose very election had generated real happiness in the country. I remember the day of the count when she was declared elected. I was on a bus and looking out the window and just seeing the joy on people's faces. And I do remember men buying red roses for women friends. And it was as if this was to say, welcome to our world where you are being let in at last. And I think it began a whole... A sort of series of women coming forth and telling their stories and their courage and their honesty in telling those stories are what has changed Ireland more than anything in the years that I've been a journalist. I say in the book that, you know, I list a whole lot of men I've interviewed Um, And really impressive, you know, wonderful men that I respected very much. But it is inescapable that they were nearly all men, all of the people in in our society who were deemed worthy of being interviewed. And yet it was stories about women and told by women that changed us fundamentally in the stories such as I suppose the abortion referendum was huge. But other stories, Lavinia Kerwick, when yeah. when um, her rapist um, received a, a suspended sentence and she went and insisted on having a meeting with the Minister for Justice, this young woman who was so articulate and so strong. Um, when you think back to the 1980s and what had happened with the Kerry Babies Tribunal, 
so many other women, more recently, Vicky Phelan, mm. you know, all the women over the years who were involved in the different abortion cases, the women involved in the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes and the symphysiotomy cases, you go on and on. And women and children were very badly treated in this state. And it was up to them. It was left to them, really to make the changes, to tell the stories that made the changes. And do you believe, Justine, that that election of Mary, of Mary Robinson, almost gave a courage and a window of opportunity for women to come and tell their stories, which they possibly might never have done before that? I've no doubt about it, Miriam. And I also think that the interview... Uh, the previous Saturday on RT Radio in which the former EU commissioner um, Porig Flynn talked about Mary Robinson's newfound belief in family. I think that enraged women and many men and that rage, I think, gave energy to women and bonded women. And I think women supported each other more and we're less judgmental of each other. That's why, in a way, one of your other great pieces in your book is about Eamon Casey and Annie Murphy. And when you look back now, I mean, her courage was extraordinary. He was a bishop to remind people because younger people, of course, forget all these stories. He had a relationship with a young woman called Annie Murphy, the daughter of a family friend of the bishop. She got pregnant. She kept their son, Peter, but the bishop never wanted to get to know him. Tell me about you flying to the US to meet Annie and Peter. And the bishop was on your flight. That's right. Um, I think it was a Thursday morning that the Irish Times broke the story. Uh, For some reason, I was at home in bed asleep on a day off when the phone rang and it was the desk in the Irish Independent saying, do you have an American visa? I said, yes. They said, get straight out to the airport. There'll be a ticket for you at the Aer Lingus information desk. So So exciting. (laughs) I love it. I jumped into a taxi and the radio was on and it was wild with the story of the bishop and, and the baby. And um, so I got out to the airport, got on the the flight to New York. And as it was statutorily required to do, the flight uh, stopped over at Shannon Airport and we were all shepherded off the plane into duty free and then back onto the plane. Halfway across the Atlantic, I was watching a tearjerker of a movie called Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe with the tears running down my face when I heard an in-flight announcement saying, would Justine McCarthy of the Irish Independent make herself known to a member of the cabin crew? So I pressed the bell and an air hostess, as they were called then, came down and said, a message has come into the cockpit from your office to tell you that your interviewee is on board Now, I was due to go to Connecticut the next day to interview Annie Murphy. I presumed she wasn't on the plane, so therefore it must be Bishop Casey. And there was a lovely group of doctors from Cork sitting beside me on the plane. Of course, from Cork. Of course. And they were heading to San Francisco for a medical conference. One of them said to me, what was that about? And I said, I explained and I said, I have to go and find the bishop. And they said, come on, we'll help you. (laughs) So we trooped up and down the plane, scrutinising every passenger's face, could not find him. And it was one of those, you know, two two story planes. Mm. 
And uh, as I went to go up the stairs to the upper deck, two members of the crew came and said, no, you're, you have an economy ticket. You can't go up there. <laughs> exactly. And I said, well, look, is Bishop Casey up there? And they both looked me in the eye and said, no. So that was fine. I went back and finished watching uh, Fried <laughs> Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. When I got off the plane at Kennedy Airport, there was a group of an of American journalists there and they had been told that the bishop was on that flight and that there was also an Irish journalist called Justine, who has very curly hair. <laughs> so they all started calling me, Justine, Justine, was he on? Was he there? Did you? I said, no, 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 he wasn't on the flight. History records he was on that flight. Um, he was whisked up to the plane when we were all taken off at Shannon. And when the plane arrived in New York, a car pulled up at the plane and drove him to New Jersey. And 18 months later, the Sunday Tribune, you might remember, did a series of interviews with him. Uh, And in those interviews, Eamon Casey boasted to the Sunday Tribune that he had been chased across the Atlantic by an Irish journalist, (laughs) but had succeeded in eluding her. (laughs) I love it. You mentioned Charles Hohey a few times in the book. Talk to me about your interactions with Mr. Hohey. Well, they are they were very long and varied. And my first uh, knowledge of him was through my mother. Uh, I mentioned earlier that my mother had very protracted and large tax bill negotiations. After my father died, my father was a Fianna Fáil councillor and had been due to stand for the next election. My mother and my father would have socialised with Charlie Hawhey and Hawhey was the Minister for Finance. My mother, in desperation, contacted him and made an appointment to come up to Dublin uh, to meet him about the tax situation. She walked into his office, all dressed in widow's black, And he proceeded to chase her around his desk. And as she told us afterwards that at one stage, his secretary came into the office and he just sat down as if nothing was happening. She left his office uh, in tears, cried the whole way back to Bandon. That was the first thing I learned Mm. about Charlie Hohey. Years later, um, as a very young freelance journalist, I was freelancing for the Irish Independent at the time, I was sent to the uh, annual motor car races in the Phoenix Park in September. (laughs) As you are. And it happened to coincide with uh, Charlie Hawhey's birthday. So my job was to do a colour piece um, about Hawhey celebrating his birthday at the races. And there was a big marquee. I walked in and Mr Hawhey the Taoiseach was sitting up at a long table and all these Fianna Fáil backbenchers were in serried ranks seated in front of him. And I went over and I said, hello, Tishuk, happy birthday. And there began a slow hand clap by the TDs uh, saying, kiss him, kiss him. So I bent over and gave him a kiss on the cheek. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't give him a kiss on the cheek. I asked him what did he get for his birthday? Had he got any nice presents for his birthday? He answered, I scribbled down the notes and like my mother before me, I fled. Um, Over the years, I would have interviewed him. I covered the tribunals, the McCracken Tribunal, 
Um, so I don't hold any torch for Charlie Hawhey, but I do think that history will be more balanced in its assessment of him than journalism has been. Journalists kowtow to him for an awful long time. Many of us were afraid of him. Um, I would say Vincent Brown was one of the rare exceptions. So I think journalists have tried to overcompensate mm-hmm. and they haven't really given him credit for the good that he did because he did do good. Were you ever tempted to challenge him on what he did running around after your widowed mother in his office? Did you ever think of saying it to him? It was in my head an awful lot of the time, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I would have the courage to do that to him. But also it would have intruded on my job and my mm. job was always to try to be as objective as I could be. And that yeah. was personal. Yeah, fair. Good point. And we were talking earlier about all the extraordinary women and you featured so many of them in your columns. You mentioned Vicky Feen and also Una Butler, Susie Long. There is one unnamed woman who talked to you. It was known as the Kilkenny incest case. Tell us about that and how did you, Justine, gain her trust? She was one of the most amazing people I have ever met. Um, One day I was in the office and at around half past four that afternoon, news emerged from the four courts that a man in his late 40s had been jailed for seven years, as far as I remember, for the routine rape and assaults on his daughter going back over many years. And uh, an editor came to me and said, I want you to go and find her. We didn't know her name. She hadn't been named. All we knew was that she lived in County Kilkenny somewhere. So a photographer and I were sent out on this bleak, dark winter's night to County Kilkenny to find her. And we literally drove from village to village and town to town um, to no avail. And eventually we were getting hungry and we saw a chipper. So I said, look, I'll go in and get something to eat. So I went in and while the girl was getting the chips, I said to her, you wouldn't happen to know the girl involved in the case, would you? And she said, why do you want to know? And I said, I'm a journalist and I'm hoping that she'll do an interview with me. And the girl took off her apron and she said, stay there. And she came back and then said, come with me. And she brought me to this really rundown sort of house, um, three stories as far as I remember, right at the top of the house beneath the rafters. This girl from the chipper opened the door. I walked in and there was, it turned out, the woman from the case. And there was a a sort of a bundle on the bed uh, huddled under Mm. a coat and it was the girl's son she had given birth to at the age of 15, conceived by rape by her father. Um, I talked to the girl for a while. She was extraordinarily calm considering the day she had just had. I thanked her for talking to me and these were in, this was the day before we had mobile phones or even Tandy's laptops. So I went to the nearest pub and I phoned in a story for the next day that that day the girl's little boy had learned for the first time that his father, that his grandfather Mm. was actually his father. And um, 
when I was finished, the phone call, um, an editor who was on duty came on the phone and told me to go back to the girl and offer her a specific amount of money if she would agree to do an on the record interview with me for the weekend's paper, um, including being photographed with her child and being named. And I refused to do it. I said, I think that that will destroy their lives. Mm. And I was told this is not a request. I am ordering you to do it. So I went back to the room beneath the rafters and I said to the woman, I have been ordered by my editor to offer you this money um, in return for you and your son being identified publicly and being photographed. I said, I've now made you the offer. I'm advising you not to do it because you and your son will be forever associated with this and you will never be able to escape it. And my heart sank because she said, I'm going to do the interview. But, she added, I am not taking the money. I will not be named. I will not be photographed and my son will not be identified. Come back in the morning and do the interview with me. So I went back the next morning and I spent about two hours with her. She was incredibly articulate and strong. Her memory was very, very reliable. And she talked about the many times that she had been hospitalised because of her father's brutality. She talked about giving birth at the age of 15 in a hospital. She talked about confiding in a social worker and being told that was a family matter. Uh, she told me she had attempted to run away several times, but had been found and returned each time. And um, I never met her again, but she is somebody I think about from time to time. And I wonder how she has fared. And I just hope that she has had the life since that she deserved because she was, she, to me, she was a hero. And she might be listening to you this morning. And if she is, that would be great. That would especially be incredible. if her life has gone on. And I hope her son is having a good life. Mm-hmm. But it was very honourable of you to advise her not to do it. I think anybody would have, Miriam. You would have done the same. Yeah, I hope so. Not sure everyone would, Justine. Most people would, I think. There are personal moments in the book too, Justine. You write about your sister's child, Duncan. I think he was given up for adoption and meeting him as an adult... Tell me a little about him. Well, this is a happy story, really, in the end. I I said earlier that um, I'm one of four daughters and the eldest, Bernice, was this stunningly gorgeous um, big sister whom I adored and I wanted, always wanted to be like her. And she was cheeky and wild and beautiful and uh, stylish. And one day uh, during the summer holidays, I was allowed to go up to Cork City from Bandon on my own for the first time on condition that I got the bus back with Burr because she was working as a beauty consultant with Revlon and Cork. So we were coming back on the bus that evening and I was sitting beside her as proud as anything to be with my big sister. And I was admiring her in her grey Revlon uniform with the pink lipstick mm. uh, matching the, the pink of Revlon on her uniform. And I looked down and I thought her tummy is sticking out. And Bernice was always so slight. She was very petite. And then that night in our house, something very strange happened because in a house of all females, it tended to be very quiet. There were no 
you know, violent noises. But that night I heard shouting in the kitchen and the front door slamming. And the moment I heard the door slam, I realised Burr is pregnant. And she was. It was 1974. It was a scandal. Um, she was therefore a harlot because she was pregnant outside of marriage at the age of 20. And if we had been poor, she would have gone to a mother and baby home. We were lucky in that we, we weren't rich, but we weren't poor. And she could afford to go to England and she went to England to sit out the pregnancy actually with the father of the child. And there were contacts with a family in England and Burr uh, became very friendly with the woman in that family and made a private arrangement for that woman to adopt the child when he would be born. In the meantime, my mother had gone over to visit Burr as well. Um, When the baby was born, of course, Bernice couldn't part with him. So she got herself and him on a plane and flew straight back to Cork. And she stayed, I think it was 10 days in Bandon, uh, in this small town of, you know, twitching windows. And she came to the realisation that she wasn't going to be able to bring him up, that it wouldn't be fair to him. So she called her friend, the woman in England with whom she'd made the arrangement, and she came over and took the baby away. And my mother always had a picture of the baby in her wallet. And but it was never really spoken about. And then we were back in school and boarding school by the time the baby had been born. And the next thing was my mother came to visit us as she did every Sunday. And she told us Burr had gone to live in South Africa. Um, She went into exile, more or less, in order to start a new life. And um, she actually did marry uh, a man she adored in South Africa, of whom I am extremely fond as well, and had two more sons. Then one day in 2011, I was on the bus and I was scrolling through my emails and I found an email saying, forgive me if you're not who I think you are, but I think your sister is my mother. Oh, Miriam, I felt like jumping up on the bus and shouting with joy when I found him. And um, I told my other two sisters and we arranged to speak to him on the phone the following Sunday. At this stage, my mother was in a nursing home in the late stages of Alzheimer's disease. She hadn't been able to walk for two years at that stage or to speak. And the three of us spoke to Duncan on the phone and he had these beautiful uh, crystal clear English vowels (laughs) and he told us he'd had a lovely childhood and lovely parents and siblings and uh, we arranged that he would come over to Dublin the following week and um, we'd all meet him and introduce him to our families but we did have to tell him in that phone call that it was just too late that Burr had died She died four days after her 51st birthday. So it was hard telling him that. But the the happy side of it was going to the nursing home. And I remember 
My Adrian sat at one side of the wheelchair and I sat at the other side, holding a hand each of our mother and said, Mum, we've spoken to him and you would be proud of him and he's happy. And we told her everything in detail. And when we were finished, now she hadn't spoken for two years at this stage. Adrian said, isn't it great? And my mother took a huge breath and said it is. And the following Thursday, she choked on a piece of food and was admitted to hospital. So it was almost like this was, you know, divinely choreographed. And um, Duncan did come over. Uh, uh, My mother was still in hospital at that stage and he met us all and our husbands and our children. And then he came back. My my mum died and he came back the following Christmas with his foster his adoptive parents, his own two children, uh, two sons again, and his partner and my cousin in Cork and his wife held a huge uh, party in their house and all the aunts and uncles and cousins came with gifts of Cork Crystal and Munster Aww. rugby shirts and Cork GAA shirts for the boys. And we all raised at last to Burr and... It, it was lovely. It was lovely you met him. Well, just before I let you go, Justine, I know you dedicated to your beautiful son, Murrow, but your own husband, Dennis, I know, died in January 2021. How have you been since? I I have been kept myself very busy. Writing a book? <laughs> writing a book. I'm building a house and I've just sold my house. And um, my son is fantastic and has been a fantastic support to me and I hope I have helped support him. I haven't written about Dennis in the book because to me that is a different story entirely and it's one I don't feel I'm ready to write about yet. Totally understand, Justine. Well, look, it's a great book and I on Ireland New and Selected Journalism by you, Justine McCarthy. It's a great journey, as it says, through social change and through all the stories you've covered. Justine McCarthy, thank you so much for being my guest this morning. Thank you, Miriam. Mind yourself. And look, I suppose if anyone listening has been affected by any of the issues we've been talking about, uh, you can get details of helplines on rt.ie forward slash helplines. And our listeners have been loving you, Justine. One says, what a lovely storyteller. Write on, Justine, and thank you for sharing so authentically. Another says, Justine is such a brilliant journalist, a gentle and intelligent voice. Looking forward to reading the book. I'll bring you one more. Linda says, so lovely to hear Justine this morning, an incredible lady and wonderful journalist. Let's take a break. And then lots on Justine. Riveting interview with Justine McCarthy, very moving and compassionate. Another, Sean and Selbridge says, Justine, Justine is an incredible lady and journalist and we're also lucky to have someone of her intellect and kindness sharing her story and insights. And Paula Cogan says, that was a fascinating interview with Justine McCarthy. It's shocking to think that much of the unjust treatment of women in Ireland that Justine has documented is in the recent past. I look forward to reading the book. 